0: we're gonna to start tonight in uh first john i want to make a few more introductory m- remarks before i go through verses one through four um, i i discovered some things in the study that really uh... answered a lot of questions that i have had about this book for years and uh... uh... really encouraged me there's a few things you might like to write down uh... because uh... This is this is very encouraging, and one other thing. This Sunday morning, I'm going to begin the Gospel of John, and you're gonna you you will see why here in a moment. So, if you'll take your copy of God's Word, Word First John, the the epistle or of John, the first epistle of John, and it says, "What was from the beginning that we have heard, what we." have seen with our eyes what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to us what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Father, we ask for expediency of time and delivery in the next moments that we have. We pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts greatly uh, with the truths of this text. And that we will never be the same again for what we have learned, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. so if you want to write you a chart out, you would write down the Gospel of John, the first epistle of John, and the Revelation of John. The Gospel of John, the epistle of John, the epistles of John, and the Revelation of John. John is the author of all three of these books. And so let me show you something that's absolutely fascinating. The Gospel of John's emphasis is on salvation. The emphasis of the epistle of John is on sanctification, and the emphasis of the revelation of John is on glorification. So you have salvation, sanctification, or glorification. That's how it moves, and that's chronologically how it moves in Scripture. So John is looking at the time that the epistle, the epistle for us at the moment, as I showed you last week, is an epistle of, salve, of assurance of salvation. And we're going to recover much of that tonight. But the gospel of John was how to believe and be saved. The epistle of John, 1 John, is how to know and have assurance of that salvation. And revelation is to talk about the glorification that comes from that salvation. It's awesome. It's awesome. I mean, I'm thinking, well, I need to preach Revelation too, but our heads will explode if we do all this at once. And uh, so you have the emphasis on salvation in John, the emphasis on sanctification in 1 John, and the emphasis on glorification in Revelation. But that's not all. The Gospel of John speaks of past history, the epistles of John speak of present experience, and the Revelation of John speaks of future hope. Isn't that cool? All right, the Gospel of John speaks for Christ died for us. The Epistle of John speaks that Christ lives in us. And the Revelation of John says that Christ comes for us. Isn't that amazing? One more the Gospel of John speaks of the Word made flesh. The epistle of John, the word is made real in us. And in the revelation of John, the word conquers. It's the conqueror. And so the word has been made flesh and dwelt among us, and now the word is made real to us, which is exactly what this text talks about right here. And in Revelation, it talks about he is the conqueror. I think that's fascinating. One of the things I'm going to share with you Sunday morning is the concept that um, John's gospel, when I introduce John's gospel to you and we begin, John's gospel talks about union with Christ, union with Christ. The first epistle of John talks about communion with Christ, union and communion. Well, communion is the same thing where we get the term community, and so I'm going to deal with all of that Sunday morning. <laughs> so let me give you some things to write down as far as the aim of the book, because in this portion is really what has made 1 John no longer, to me, the hardest book in the New Testament, and I all of this was last night uh, as I laid in the bed and went through notes and studied. So let me show you a couple things. The aim, there's about five things here. The first one is in verse 3 of 1 John chapter 1, look what it says. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus. So the first thing is this. The first five major purposes of this epistle is that we might have fellowship in verse 3. So you want to write that down. Fellowship is the key theme of the first two chapters, of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Fellowship has to do with what? Communion with Christ. Communion with Christ, not our union with Christ, which is sonship. It has to do with our communion of Christ which is fellowship. Our union with Christ brings about sonship and daughtership. Okay? So our daily... Listen, get this down, because this is so important as you read 1 John. Our daily fellowship with the Lord may change. It'll change. Our fellowship changes. It, It ebbs and flows based upon what we're doing. But our sonship never changes. So remember that, because this is going to be the great aha in just a moment. Number two, in verse 4 it says, These things we write so that our joy may be complete. That means that we might have joy. That's the second aim of the book, is that we might have joy. Not just that we might have fellowship, but that we might have joy. So two of the five major aims of the book are covered in the passage before us tonight. The next one is, and the word joy is used only here in the whole book. This is the only time it appears, but it is seen throughout the whole letter because the joy is the result of close fellowship with Christ. Okay? And I'm going to give you a whole thing about that in a moment. So, number three, that we might not sin. Look over here in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for those of the whole world. Now when you, con- when you think about that passage, and it's dealing with the concept of fellowship in this portion, and then the rest of the book is proof of our sonship, That's a tremendous blessing. So the aim of the book is that we might not sin. The penalty of sin is taken care of when the sinner trusts Christ. And everybody can say what? Amen. Amen. But the power of sin over the daily life is another matter. And 1 John explains this, how we may have victory over sin and how we continue to walk in forgiveness when we do sin. Okay, So this is a book about how to overcome it. The, the, the gospel, the curse has been broken through Christ, but the sin has not. But the penalty of it has. And so that's what this book is, to give assurance in the midst of... Because the, the idea is this. These are, this is a general letter written to people that are truly striving after godliness. And they sin. And the the more that you strive after godliness and the closer you walk with the Lord, the more painful sin is to you. And so it is a book of assurance to them. And the aim here is fellowship, joy, that we might not sin. But here's the next one. Letter four, number four, that we might overcome error. Look at verse 26 of chapter 2. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Now, I don't know if you feel this way today, but I think there are some forces out there that are trying to deceive us. Don't you think that? That are trying to deceive us. Well, we know this, that the devil is the father of lies and there is no truth in him, so all deception is rooted in him regardless of which news company they work for. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. So John was facing the false teaching of his day as we face false teachers today. Uh, Second Peter chapter two is all about false teachers, and there are plenty of false teachers today on the airways. And uh and I'm speaking in my lane, in your lane, in the sense of that which is religious. Uh the false teachers in John's day were claiming these three things that you would be well there's actually four that you would benefit from knowing perhaps that matter was evil, actual matter you know, this is evil this is evil, matter, things you can touch, tangible things and so therefore Christ did not come in the flesh because if if the Savior of the world came in the flesh then he would be fundamentally evil because matter is evil well, our Greek word for that is what? baloney that's B-O-L-O-G-N-A now, the second thing is that Christ only appeared to be a real man. He only appeared to be a real man, okay? And that's all he was, they say. Number three, that knowledge of truth is more important than living in truth. Okay, now this is something, this is an error that is even found amongst uh, good and godly folks. It's, it's the knowledge of truth is more important than living truth. And John is going to make it very clear in this passage that, oh, no it's not It's not a one sided thing like that, and number four, that only a spiritual few could understand spiritual f- truth. This spirit is alive today as well, especially uh, with the manifestations of particular signs and so forth uh, that if you don't have these things and you don't have you know the fullness of understanding so as you read through this passage or as you read through the Gospel of John without telling you this that uh, everything John says is contrary to those four things. He shows they're not. Now, there is an error that is out there, In the first time I had preached First John, I preached it as a book that was preaching against Gnosticism. That's not its primary focus. It's not Gnosticism. Its focus is Christ. Okay? He deals with some Gnostic issues, but that's not why he wrote the Bible, or he wrote this passage. I just gave you the reason. four aims already. Here's the fifth one and we studied this ad nauseum last week that we might have assurance in chapter 5 verse 13. I write these things that you who believe in the Son of God might know you have eternal life. Now I'm going to show you in just a moment in 1 John chapter 1 where he called Jesus eternal life. He called him eternal life. So I'm going to show you that he's not talking about heaven. He's showing you something far greater. Okay? We'll look at that. And so here's what I want you to see. Write this down. The Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, John 20, 31, tells us how to be saved. The epistle of John tells us how to be sure we are saved. And this is how he does it. Chapter 1 and 2 is all about our fellowship with Christ. Chapters 3 through 5 are our sonship with Christ. So he starts with communion and moves into union. One thing you will always feel different about, your feelings will tell you one thing or another, is the extent or the, or how you are fellowshipping with God and His people. That will ebb and flow. But your sonship with Him can never be changed. And that's why this has been so enlightening to me because, and, and there's some in here that knows, I've been reading 1 John for quite some time every morning. And you read 1 John, you say, how in the world could I ever be saved? Because I'm a son. Now, you don't have to fill in the rest of that. I'm a son. I have union with Christ. And the reason that I struggle so is because uh, I don't practice as legitimately as I should my communion with Christ, my fellowship. Because the closer you are to the light, as it says in 1 John 1.7, I think he is in the light. And uh, we're in the light and we walk with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin and we have fellowship with one another, right? So the closer I get, the closer I get, right? He's in the light, we walk in the light. And John, he says, and he was the light and dwelt among us. But men don't love the light because they love the darkness, so forth and so on, all right? So that just is a, number three is a way of analysis. Just as I've shown you the aim, the author of the aim, here's the analysis. The analysis is simply this. 1 and 2 is about fellowship. 3 through 5 is about sonship. And if you will remember that right, reading this book the rest of your Christian life, this is going to become a totally, well, for me anyway, it has become a totally wonderful friend that is not at all intimidating because it has absolutely, totally, birthed the security of the believer and of course the security of the believer is the foundation of assurance which is a feeling. Security is a fact. Assurance is a feeling. So I can know. So what we're going to learn is that I can know that I am a son of God. That you can know you are a son of God if by obeying his word you have love for him and his people and if you believe and live by the truth Because each section of this book is broken down into a series of tests. And the outline I gave you last week shows you those tests. And each of those tests comprise these three things every time. Are we walking in the light? Are we walking in love? And are we walking in truth? Every time. All of his tests in this book deal with those three things. And here's what makes 1 John somewhat difficult to outline. 1 John is not in any specific order. He, 1 John is literally rambling. And so we let the commentators sort it out for us preachers. Okay, So I can know that I'm a son of God based on walking in the light, walking in love, walking in truth. The first two chapters deal with my fellowship. The last three chapters deal with my sonship. The whole gospel of John deals with my union, which is sonship. But the emphasis of the epistle is my fellowship. The, the emphasis of revelation is my glorification. Amen? Yeah. So it's all about Jesus. I mean, you know, people, well, I just want you to preach Jesus. This one is all about Jesus. And so let me show you this. Beginning in verse 1. Beginning in verse 1, it's an introductory thing, so there's not a ton of application until we get to fellowship and joy, okay? So I have to give you some commentary to set it up because it's, it's just it's an introductory passage. It's not a part that you can really just take and say, okay, I got this and I can walk out of here and live with it. So there's some systematic theology in it. So notice this. He says, what was from, underline the word from. We're going to talk about that in a minute what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So there's a couple of things that he mentions. First of all, he is speaking about the word of life. Notice at the very end of the verse, it says the word of life. Well, what's he saying about the word of life? Well, the first thing is this. The word of life is that that which was from the beginning. That's what he's talking about. So this whole section verse 1 is dealing with this phrase word of life. Now what is what is he called in John? He's called the what? The Logos. In the beginning was the what? Word. The word and the word. 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 with God and the word. Word. was God, right? Now, notice in John 1 it says in the beginning. This says from the beginning that's a huge difference. It's a big difference. Okay? There's in the, now I can't preach Sunday sermon yet. I gotta save it. Because I got I gotta save it. So watch this. And you, you say, yes, because we need to go to bed. So watch this. Here's what I want you to just write down. When you, when he says in the beginning, it's talking about the time before creation of the world. That's not this. What is happening here is this. The author is describe, describes the word of life which is that which was from the beginning. He is in fact speaking primarily of the word of life incarnate in Jesus Christ. So he is specifically saying here, he is speaking about Jesus Christ. And now who's he writing this to? He is writing this to who? It's a general letter to the church. His gospel is a letter to the world. So he uses the Greek thought process and says in the beginning was the Word. But no, he is writing the church and so what he says is from the beginning where does he mark the beginning? The incarnation. The birth of the Messiah. Not that the word was existing with God prior to the foundation of the world, but the very Christ that walked amongst men. Okay? So this is Bethlehem's child. Okay? This is the Christmas baby that he's talking about. So he is talking about Jesus Christ, not the preexistent one. That's what he talks about in John. So I want you to realize something. The one of the beautiful things that we're, how we're going to study this by God's grace is that we're going to become so enamored with how John reveals Jesus to us that it's almost an it will become an obsession because John is the disciple who loved Jesus the most and it is interesting that on the cross he gives Jesus Christ gives his mother to John who knew Jesus the best but John's the one that loved him the most. And he, he tells the world, and he is the one that has survived and then tells the revelation, okay? So we're going we're to absolutely love John. And what's John saying? Jesus is God, and he loves you. Here in this epistle, he's writing to the church. He's saying, this is Jesus Christ, whom you have fellowship with, because he has made you a son. And therefore, no matter what you do, you're in him except he doesn't say it quite like that we have an advocate with the father is what he says Okay. the second thing is the word of life is described as which we have heard which we have heard now this makes it clear that the first hand hearing of the proclamation of jesus is implied what was heard is associated with what was seen with the eyes and touched with the hands the expressions which we shall see that imply This, there is a first-hand perception. So John in this epistle is writing as a first-hand observer, but notice he uses uses not the first-person singular, he uses a first-person plural. He says, we have seen. He's not saying, it's just me. We have seen that write these things to you. We have heard these things, and so this is in line with the statement in verse 5 where the author speaks of the message we have heard from him, which he says, This is the message which we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Amen? Amen. Okay, so that's that. Third, the word of life is described as which we have seen with our eyes. Not only heard with our ears, but seen with our eyes. I would love to read the Greek phrase to you, but that would take a minute. This expression is found, now listen, is only here in the whole New Testament. It doesn't appear anywhere else. This is the only time any phrase like this is mentioned. That's why the Greek phrase is important. It only appears here, and it is this. It emphasizes that he is an eyewitness to what he had heard. He not only heard it, in other words, he didn't hear Robert hear something that he told Rita, that he told Brad, told uh, uh, Kayleen, who told Londa, and then told Rick, and then told Johnny, and then Bill, and by the time it gets to Gene, it's, you know, uh, pie R round, cornbread R square. <laughs> when he was saying, you know, I need to change uh, the Egan's hot water cassette in the sink. Yeah. Yeah. You ready for that yet? And so the the thing is to see, but if you're an eyewitness, then you saw it. You saw him as he said it. Now, this is important to us because we have here a testimony of a man that saw our master. And he is writing this letter to us. And he's writing this letter to say, You have communion with him. You have communion. And that communion can never be broken because you have union, you have sonship. Isn't that awesome? So this makes his testimony even more powerful. Even more powerful. You know, whereas you have the apostle Paul says similar phrases like this, and I've got this all here, which I'm not going to read to you, but Paul says the same other thing, similar things. Paul, yes, was trained, I believe, by Jesus in Phrygia, the resurrected Christ and all that stuff, but one thing we know without a doubt, John, John was too. John was close to him, he loved him, uh, and, and, and Jesus loved him back. And so this is showing us something. Number four, the word of life which we have looked at. Okay, now this, this is important. This word looked at is used 22 times in the New Testament and the 19 uses outside 1 John are unambiguous in that they speak To the physical seeing of the human eye, with the human eye, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Okay? So he is making a clear case. Listen, we know what we've heard. We know what we have seen. And what we have seen is unambiguously, it cannot be thought of any other way than the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the mediator, the savior of the world, the messiah. Okay so he's doubling down and he's calling him the word of life whereas in the gospel he calls him the word okay we'll talk about that Sunday so this says this watch in verse there's three times he uses this and I want to just point this out to you look at chapter 4 chapter 4 verse 12 and keep your finger there in chapter 4 verse 12 he says this he says chapter 4 No one has seen God at any time. Okay? Now, hold on a second. He's just unambiguously made a comment about this. But no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And so, here's what I want you to note. No one has ever seen God also relates unambiguously to to seeing with the human eye. He uses the same word. And what he is saying here, as he says, whereas they have unambiguously, without a doubt, seen Jesus the Christ, no one has ever seen, without a doubt, God. Okay? He uses the same word, same sense. He does it again. He does it again in verse 14 of chapter 4. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be our Savior of the world. So here's what he does. Watch this. Two times now, he does it in chapter 1, verse 1, does it in chapter 4, verse 12, and he sums it up in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, we have unambiguously seen the Son of God. No one has unambiguously ever seen God. And he says, we now unambiguously, without a doubt, with absolutely no amount of uncertainty have seen and testify that the Father, whom we have not seen, has sent the Son, who we have seen, to be our Savior. So I want you to think about this. This kind of now begins to add the momentum to, yes, this is why this is assuring, because this is an eyewitness account. When I lived in Houston before 1984, I think it was either Channel 11 or Channel 13 News. There was a man named Marvin Zindler, and Marvin Zindler would give the weekly cockroach report. And he would go into the restaurants in Houston, and he would do all this stuff. And Marvin Zindler had I don't know how many facelifts he had or whatever. He he was like a newsman Liberace, but he'd go, Marvin Zindler, Eyewitness News. And when Marvin Zindler spoke. Go home and YouTube him. YouTube You'll laugh your head off. But when Marvin Zindler spoke, it was unambiguous. It was unambiguous. You know, Hung Chow Restaurant found 600 dead rats behind the microwave. Blah, 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 blah. So, the owners had been contacted by the so-and-so. Marvin Zindler. I mean, if Marvin Zindler showed up at your restaurant, you knew you were going to be closed. But he was Unambiguous. And so, John here is giving this testimony. It is unambiguous. Jesus, who we unambiguously have seen, who was sent of the Father, who unambiguously has been seen by no human, was sent to unambiguously testify that He is the Son of God. We testify. So that's awesome. Okay? So anyway... Then I think I got fifth. There's one more thing it says in this passage, and it's this. The word of described here, the word of life is described as something which our hands have touched. We've heard, we've seen, we've touched. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but have you ever noticed the Bible seems to work in processes of threes? The expression to touch with the hands is found only here in the New Testament. When you think about touch Jesus with the hands, who do you think about? Huh? I think about Thomas. I think about Thomas. But you think about who you like. That's okay. Because he touched many people. But Thomas touched him. And uh, so he is saying right here that uh, as what appears in three places in Luke and in Hebrews and Acts this is not a metaphor it's physical the author is using the verb to mean they have actually touched him and it is clear that by touching him that his proclamation rests on the experience of not only seeing him of not only hearing him but he says folks I've touched the man And that's something. I mean, how many of you've heard Billy Graham? Okay, how many of you've seen Billy Graham? How many of you touched? How many of you've touched him? I have. And the picture is right over there. But you don't need me to tell you that I've touched him because you've seen him and you've heard him but we don't have Jesus with us. It's like old Dr. Hutch said in Andrews. His kids, they grew up, he was a surgeon. His kids grew up and said, all we've ever heard about germs in Jesus, we've never seen either one. (laughs) Hutch, Hutch did Hutch deliver you? Uh Yeah. Hutch was the old surgeon there that hired Brian Gordon to come and uh, my friend. But uh, Dr. Hutch, old deacon at First Baptist, and he caught Kelly, and. All those Nelson kids. He probably caught everybody that was born in Andrews. He was one of those old kind of doctors. Probably treated the cows too. But uh, And I'm speaking about the bovines, excuse me. So, uh, uh, So we've heard, seen, and touched. So this is a valid testimony that is given. And so now, I've already shared with you a little bit from the beginning. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Simply put, notice notice this. Watch it again. Let me read it because I want you to catch this. I think it's self-explanatory but I want you to catch two words. And the life was manifested. So the subject of the sentence is the life. Who is the life? All right, now watch this. So you have the subject of the sentence. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Wait a minute. What's he talking about? Jesus is called eternal life. Now, look at 1 John 5.13. Watch this. If this isn't just dandy, I don't know what is. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have what? Now, the law of first mention... The law of first mention says to interpret the words, you have to go to the place where they're first mentioned. So always the Bible, not Merriam Webster, although that's good, but always the Bible. Where is this word eternal life first mentioned? In chapter two, and chapter one, verse two of first John, right here in this book Eternal Life. This passage is not talking about your assurance of salvation. This passage is speaking, 1 John specifically, is speaking of your assurance in Christ, which is your salvation. Now, think about that. That's even better. Yeah, I'm happy about eternal life, but it says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the object of the Is that the, what's that part of the sentence called, Kelly? So that you may know that you have, is that the direct object? That's the direct object that's referring back to Jesus, the Son of God. Isn't that cool? All right. So, so it's testified and proclaimed this eternal life. And of course, as he says in verse 2, this eternal life was with the Father. All right, verse 3, just moving on a little bit more. That we have seen and heard, what we have seen and what, and heard we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ." So this is communion. He is reiterating what he has already affirmed in verses 1 and 2 so that you may have fellowship with us. So you might want to write these down. To have Now this is important. To have fellowship with Him is the alternative To having fellowship with the false teachers now the rest of the book proves this up fellowship in this context does not just speak of having fellowship with the author of the book who has seen heard and touched Jesus and testifies but it's to have fellowship with the one whom he has seen heard and touched Jesus as well Consequently, since they are being told throughout the ancient Near East where this, this letter is being written that all matter is bad, those that say matter is bad, if you're in fellowship with them, you need to get out of fellowship with them and get back into fellowship with Christ, whom we have seen, heard, and touched and bear witness unambiguously about. And so to have fellowship with To have this fellowship is what Paul talks about where he says, come out from amongst them. Separate yourselves from them. Come out from amongst them. Okay? The second thing is this fellowship doesn't just talk about this communion with Christ and John and the church that is walking in, in the manner of obedience of this word of life. And walking in light, walking in love, and walking in obedience, as will be proved up in the next few verses to next week. But this is something else this fellowship means, and I want you to get this. It is partnership in the work of proclamation. It is a fellowship that is demonstrative or demonstrated by a partnership in the proclamation of this Jesus. To have fellowship with the cessationists, as you would call them, or to have fellowship with the uh, anti-matter people (laughs) would involve a partnership with them in evil work. 2 John 11 specifically says that. And so he's saying, have fellowship. You have fellowship with Christ. You have fellowship with me. This is a great thing, and this is a demonstration of it that you partner in the proclamation that this is who Jesus is. And he says he is, he is the Son of God. He is eternal life. Okay? But there's one other thing. He encouraged his readers. He says, our fellowship is with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ. So write this down. Christian fellowship is primarily a fellowship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. You say, that, we knew that. Write it down and go home and read that over and over again. And say, so, no, nah, I probably didn't. Christian fellowship is primarily a fellowship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. Now listen to this. Write down John 17, 3 right there. Write down and listen to what Jesus says. In the high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus Christ says in the Gospel of John, He said, now this is eternal life. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent." Now, this is Jesus saying these words to His Father. So He refers to Himself outside of Himself. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what is eternal life? Again, it is all summarized and summed up in this man, this God-man, this fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ, the mediator, the Savior. Okay? And so fellowship, Christian fellowship. So I want you to get this concept. We're very good at fellowship here. Where We got it down. Knock on, knock on pulpit. We got it down. We don't have fussing and fighting. We love to be together. It's a great thing. And, but according to John's epistle, Christian fellowship is not fellowship with each other, it's fellowship with God through the Son. And so that then brings about a conversation that has to be about the term koinonia, which I don't have time to do, and I'm prepared to do tonight. I don't have time to do with uh, koinonia but I have it all written down right here. If I can do it, I will. Number four, look at this. Oh, just get this down. What the author therefore is saying in this verse is that to have fellowship with him is to have fellowship with God, which involves fellowship with his son to share in the work of God. That's what Christian fellowship means here. Okay? Now, number four, It says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, on the first reading, you may think, as I thought, it is strange. Why would the writer of the book write them so that his joy, his personal joy, may be complete? You know, why wouldn't he be saying so that the joy of his readers may be made complete? Well, the writer... Obviously understands, John obviously understands his own joy in Christ cannot be complete if fellow believers whom he feels responsible for are in danger of departing the the truth or being carried away. This is without question the greatest pain a pastor feels. His joy is complete when his folks are getting it, but it is not when they are not and so the author recognizes his own joy cannot be complete if fellow believers for whom he feels some responsibility are in danger from departing by the departing the truth and becoming involved in another koinonia in another fellowship one which will soon prove to be bogus as it does not as it does not really involve fellowship with the Father through His Son. Okay? Makes sense, doesn't it? So His motive then is simply to them. He wants to establish this fellowship so that they do not get carried away, so that His joy is complete. He is pleading from them saying, it'll make me so happy if, you know. Uh, And so... The author thinks of the establishment of fellowship of believers as not something based upon, and you want to write this down, the author is showing us that his view of fellowship is not something that is based upon a mutual assent to a common purpose, but something that is created as people walk in the light as God is in the light. See, he goes on to say it. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So that fellowship then, then, once it's established, is a basis that it's a commitment not only to a common purpose, but it's a partnership to the proclamation of the word and uh, it would be wrong to say that the fellowship is completely based upon a mutual assent of a set of facts. According to John, the jo- which is the Bible, um, he is simply saying that this joy is made complete when these things happen. So let me give you some application so you can leave with this. Okay, Concerning the fellowship, let me give you these things for you. God has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ and has shown us that he deeply cares for us and he wants us to have fellowship with him. Okay? We can have fellowship with God and what that means is we become acceptable to him through Christ we relate to him and talk and share with him we have him walk with us through the day uh, looking after and caring for our For us, step by step, we cast our problems on Him. We trust in His help in meeting our needs. We ask for strength. We know that He will constantly give us a life of love, joy, and peace as we fellowship with Him. He'll deliver us from sin and ultimately from death, give us life eternal, which is giving us Himself for eternal life and the eternal life that comes with it, and that we depend upon not our own righteousness but Him. That is the joy of fellowship. Have you all, how many of y'all in the 80s, the late 80s, the 80s, you know, the most popular poster was what? Footprints in the, all right, so you've seen the footprints in the sand. Have you ever seen the one that has the footprints in the sand, and then it's two footprints, and then this ditch? And, uh, you know, you just got a set of footprints, and then there's footprints in the ditch. And it's like, well, that's when you were walking with me. That's when I carried you, and this was when I had to drag you. i've seen that (laughs) i had to drag you okay so the word joy so you have fellowship so that's the first thing and then you have the joy that's mentioned here and i'll just give you these very quickly there's four things that you can write down about this joy without me going into detail number one this joy the believer's joy is a divine joy that's spoken of uh It is a joy that does not depend on circumstances or happiness. Uh, It is a joy that springs from faith. And it's a joy of a future reward that keeps one faithful. I want you to always remember at the end of the line is Jesus. And everywhere in between the end of the line and you now is Jesus too. We walk with him now, but what's so great about eternal life is that it's him. He is at the end of the line. And uh, that's, you know, when Jesus says the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life and life abundantly, who's saying that? Well, we know, we learned something tonight from John. Eternal life said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but eternal life has come to give you life and life abundantly. And that's why, and, uh, and you notice how John calls him here. He calls him the word of life the word of life at the end of verse one so the fellowship with the father brings joy victory over sin and death joy all this there's about eleven things i've got so be very encouraged about this Um, on sunday morning i'm going to uh, speak to you out of john one and we'll do the first section of john over the next few weeks But I will pass out to you a marvelous, it's the um, Second London Confession Statement of Christ the Mediator with all the Bible verses of Jesus Christ as passages of scriptures have been summarized into short statements for people to remember about. And it is interesting as I went through it this morning that the majority of the statements of Christ as the Mediator in the historical confession come from John. And so John is absolutely this magnificent thing and uh, uh, I'm going to share with you, I hope if I have time, something that absolutely stopped me in my tracks this morning as I studied and it is that um, the thing about Jesus Christ is that before Jesus Christ came to the earth, in eternity past, he and his father made a covenant and I've already talked to you about the covenant of redemption. It's also known as the... Uh, the uh, how did I write it? It's called the... Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, but when that, con- when that thing was made, when they made what is known as, you've heard of the universal moral law of God, and I've told you about this, well this is the covenant of redemption. That's it's before the foundations of the earth. It's all demonstrated in Psalms, actually, have all the Bible verses showing this and bearing witness to it in the New Testament. Um, the Lamb's Book of Life was signed before we were born. The Mediator filled out the Lamb's Book of Life. And the reason is, as the scripture says, and I hope to show you this, because we have to talk about Jesus as the pre-existent one. John's talking about him here as the existing one. But in his gospel, the pre-existent one. When he was the pre-existent one, the only begotten of the Father, the covenant of redemption was made, both based upon the decree of God, and his dealings with man. The covenant of redemption was made. It's in the scripture. It's unambiguous. And um, uh, Jesus Christ was given the elect then as a surety. Surety means he was given them as a promise. And so what Jesus Christ did is he went and wrote down the names of all of those whom the Father had given him. Remember, Jesus says, all the Father has given me, I have not lost one. And so then what he did is he wrote those names in what is known as the Lamb's Book of Life and then he set out on the mission to come and bring every one of those folks to his Father by becoming for them the surety in other words in their place condemned he stood and not one of them will be lost this was before the foundations of the world god has always operated in grace and he gave his son he gave his son the believers he wrote the believers names down in the lambs book of life and then he said father i'm going to earth And I'm going to redeem every one of these people, past, present, and future. Whatever point in time, I will become their surety, and I will present them to you on that great day by giving myself for them. And that is the whole story of redemption. And I'm going to show that all to you. And that all happened in the pre-existing time of Christ. I will probably have a handout for you because the amount of Bible reading that you will need to do that, I have already got it done for you, and you can go find... You can go prove it out. So be excited about Sunday. We're going to have a good time. It's going to be all about Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God.